0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 17 of the Medical Device Success Podcast. This is Ted Newell, your host, and we continue to explore strategies, tactics, and technologies that we can employ as professionals to help our companies succeed in this pandemic environment. One of the tactics we have spent time on is virtual communications. They are so important right now, and we have focused mainly on technical aspects of of making virtual communications more effective, but we've missed an important aspect. And today with the help of author and expert, Nick Morgan, PhD, we will explore the neuroscience of virtual communications to help make your communication better. Let's get started. Okay, before we get started with this episode, a little bit of housekeeping. This week I am starting the tours of the beta community for the people that are participating. And as I've said in a couple notes, I would love to have a couple more marketing people in the beta group. So if you're interested, please let me know. Second, Johnson & Johnson's quarterly results came out the other day. And while the company was doing reasonably well overall, The medical device sector was down 25%, and if theirs is down 25%, we know that the entire medical device sector is suffering, and all of you know that as well because you're living it day in and day out. So we need to continue to use all our resources to try to do as well as we can in this environment. And that leads us into today's subject matter, which I mentioned before during the introduction to the podcast, where we will be talking with Nick Morgan, Ph.D. Dr. Morgan is one of America's top communication theorists and coaches. A passionate teacher, he is committed to helping people find clarity in their thinking and ideas and then delivering them with panache. He has been commissioned by Fortune 500 companies to write for many CEOs and presidents. He has coached people to give congressional testimony, to appear on the Today Show, and to deliver unforgettable TED Talks. He has worked widely with political and educational leaders, and he has himself spoken, led conferences, and moderated panels at venues around the world. His latest book, which is his fourth, is published by Harvard Business Press in 2018. It's titled, Can You Hear Me? How to Connect with People in a Virtual World. That was done in 2018. How prescient. In the show notes I'll have a link to Nick's uh, LinkedIn profile and I'll also have a link to his website and to where you can purchase the book. I think it'll be on his website. And no, I do not make any money from this. It is my service to you as my audience. So let's get started with the interview. Nick, thank you very much for spending time with us on the podcast today.
1: Ted, it's a great pleasure to be with you. I'm looking forward to our conversation.
0: Yeah, so am I, especially since I saw you on the ExecuNet webinar and learned a lot about your ideas in terms of communication and, frankly, some of the things I was missing in this podcast that we're trying to cover to help people and help medical device companies, marketing salespeople, and, and other individuals in terms of communicating during the pandemic. What motivated you to start your company back in 1997?
1: I had been a, uh, a teacher in the academic world. I taught Shakespeare in public speaking. I'd then gone into uh, writing for politicians. Worked on some campaigns. That was very exciting. Uh, also, ages you quickly. It's a that's a young person's game, and uh, politicians are often reluctant to pay. So then I moved into the business world, and I worked for two fast-growing consulting companies that also shrank just as fast. Uh, And I got laid off twice, and I thought, that's enough of that. So I started my own company in 97, and I haven't looked back since.
0: Now, I can understand where you're coming from there, because anybody worth anything has been laid off or fired, including yours truly, Ted Newell. Um, And that was a good experience for me, because it got me into consulting. I had clients immediately, and I, like you, I have not looked back either. What are the services you offer individuals, companies, and organizations?
1: We help people tell their stories. That's, that's how we describe it. What that means is we help individuals become thought leaders, figure out what their ideas are more precisely and in ways that are stickier, as, the, as we say in the business, uh, so that people hear them and remember them and talk about them and share them. Yeah, so we do a lot of that. I do a lot of speech coaching. Uh, we work on books with people. We help them with their websites. All the sort of public expressions of the way you might talk about an idea. I also work with individuals, executives and corporations, uh, executive teams to help them uh, communicate better. I, I coach them on their, on their communication skills, executive presence, uh, how to show up, especially now in the virtual world that's a tricky thing that uh, involves learning new kinds of communication tricks and and styles and so that's become a part of the mix of course during the pandemic
0: you know that comment about teaching people how to tell their stories or helping people tell their story better is so important and in our conversation that you and I had the other day you know i mentioned how important i felt that was and that could be the subject of a totally different podcast because in medical devices Companies just don 't tell stories very well, so hopefully we can come back to that sometime in the future but uh, today i'd love to yeah i'd love to Why okay, not? super, and today we 're moving on to something else, but talk about individuals, companies, organizations. I know you 've worked with celebrities and and pretty big companies. Is it okay to name a couple of these people
1: sure I can name some that have given me permission to do so. I've worked with uh, some celebrities from reality TV. And and so that means that half of your listeners will have heard of them and the other half will just say, huh, who's that? (laughs) Uh, So Les Gold, who uh, was the the star of a show uh, called Hardcore Pawn, about the biggest pawn shop in Detroit, was uh, somebody that I worked with. We did a book with him and worked on his speech and helped him on his uh, post his post tv career as a speaker uh, so that's that's one example oh, that's interesting uh, yeah so uh, we've worked with uh, a number of politicians some of whom i can name the most famous of whom i can name is uh, mario cuomo
0: oh wow. wow okay yeah
1: and i've worked with some heads of state for those they'll they'll kill me if i say who they are so <laughs> okay. i'll be very careful about that
0: don't want that to happen how about companies <laughs>
1: Oh, I've worked with many over the years. Uh, sort of most of the Fortune 100. You can kind of assume I've worked with them. Um, IBM, most of the IT companies, a lot of pharmaceuticals. I have a lot of experience in the healthcare world. So uh, those are those are two areas where I have a lot of expertise. Also, uh, also uh, real estate companies. Oddly enough, hmm. um, that turns out to be quite a niche as well. Uh, once you get talking to one real estate. Uh, CEO then then they tend to uh, talk to each other and pass the word around
0: that's interesting
1: and I make a specialty I have made a specialty in working with people who have climbed Mount Everest and and again that's because it's a very small community and they all talk to each other and, and so they give each other recommendations uh, so I've worked with a number of people who have climbed Mount Everest
0: Wow, <laughs> fascinating business
1: yeah, and there's was... a specialty for you
0: yeah exactly <laughs> And also the fact you mentioned that you will actually help people uh, write their books, uh, put their books together, and I noticed that on your website, and I, th- I thought that was quite interesting, too.
1: Now, it's just- a very important part of thought leadership. If you're going to become a speaker, for example, that's one standard, one traditional way to monetize your ideas, your thought leadership. Then a book is important to that because in the, in the speaking world, it's proof of your expertise. It is proof that you are an established expert. And the public speaking world really likes proof. It's a conservative industry. It doesn't like to put people on stage that might be uh, flaky or suspect. And, and so it's all it's all very tied up in proving that you've got the authority to talk on a particular subject, hence the books.
0: Excellent. Very good. And then what, ha- what has changed in the nature of requests for your help due to the pandemic?
1: Well, the biggest and perhaps most unsurprising change is that now everybody's working on online not face to face and so they are really struggling as we all are with the strange nature of a zoom uh, conference or more broadly speaking how to make sure that your intent comes through clearly in the virtual world because when i did research on the for the book can you hear me that came out in 2018 that was my big biggest finding was that what we humans care about most is each other's intent we care about that more than the specific words that you might be uttering um, and face to face we are very used to decoding each other's intent through body language through all the gestures and facial expressions and movements that come with your st- communication when you're communicating face-to-face. Online, all of that goes away. So suddenly, we're lacking that information, and we're finding it hard to decode each other's intent. As a result, we tend to assume the worst. So there's often a negative cast to uh, virtual communications. And so what I've been focusing on, what, what people have been asking most is, how do I cope in that virtual world? How do I communicate clearly? And how do I make sure I understand other people clearly?
0: Yeah. And that's one of the things I want to make sure that the listeners understand today is, and I mentioned this in the lead up to the podcast, but today we're talking about virtual interaction. And I guess the, the nuances involved in the, that's like founded in the neuroscience of communication. And, you know, in past episodes, we've talked about improving your PowerPoint slides or using them a certain way to better fit the virtual environment or having the right kind of background and camera and so on and so forth. But there's this other real important issue that you're talking about now, which I guess I'm calling the neuroscience involved in communication. And there's a difference between face-to-face and virtual.
1: That's absolutely right. And it's extremely important for your listeners to understand. We are hardwired. We have evolved to communicate face-to-face. That's the way we normally and naturally do it. And, and so just to give your listeners a quick for instance a quick example on the virtual webinar that through which we met i had asked the audience how many of you sent the following email good job nice job great job two-word email just a, an boy or an girl, as we call it praising somebody in your organization maybe a colleague or maybe a direct report if you manage a group of people 100 of the of the people on that webinar had sent that email and, and I said, don't worry, it's not a trick question. It's a nice email to send. Good for you. <laughs> These are things we should say when we can to our colleagues. And then I asked, would it shock you to learn that 60% of the time that email is taken as sarcastic?
0: I remember that. I and
1: remember that's that. when when I used to speak about that face-to-face, that's when I'd get an audible gasp from the audience. People were genuinely shocked. And so I paused for the inaudible gasp on the webinar <laughs> uh, and What I go on to say about that is people find that hard to understand because they say, well, how could the other person be so stupid? If we're being honest, that's what they're actually that's what we actually think. We think, how could the other person misunderstand me? And what I've learned is that's the wrong question. The right question is, how do I make my intent clear in a different medium? So if we were communicating face to face and I said to you, nice job, Ted. I'd say it with a smile or a nod or a pat on the arm. And that would convince you that I actually meant it. If I said it with a sneer and a funny look on my face, then you might think, yeah, that was sarcastic and how nasty of Nick to do such a thing. In the virtual world, you don't know, you don't get those body language cues. And because it's safer to assume the worst for environmental reasons we tend to assume the negative so that's why you get 60% of the time that simple email being taken as sarcastic and of course that's just a very simple example the opportunities for misunderstanding in the text-based communication virtual world are enormous and they are still Enormous in audio conferences, where at least we can hear each other's voices and ask quick follow-up questions. And there are even still a lot of chances for misunderstanding in video conferences, where we get the most information about the other person's intent because we do see at least their face. Uh, but we could talk about that if you if you like. But uh, um, in each level of that virtual communications hierarchy, there are issues with the with the ways in which uh, we get the information that we that we want, which is the other person's intent toward us. What do they mean when they say nice job or all the other things that they might be saying?
0: So that's what you were referring to in that webinar when you talked about your research finding that virtual relationships degrade over time and that there is like this negative default interpretation.
1: That's right. Uh, A great example of that is I'm sure most of your listeners have done an audio conference from time to time. If you're a part of an organization, you might have a weekly audio conference where you catch up with your team. And what happens on that weekly audio conference is everybody puts their phones on mute and they go and do their email while they're half listening. And then at some point, the boss or the leader of uh, of the audio conference asks a question and Maybe people are actually eager to respond and they've been paying attention and they lunge for the mute button and and unmute themselves in order to say something. That tiny little pause between the time that the person, the leader asks the question and people get the mute button off and they're able to respond, we can't help ourselves. We never interpret that as stunned silence because everybody thinks it's such a magnificent idea they hardly know what to say. Nobody ever thinks that. What they think is, oh, people don't like the idea. Oh, they're not enthusiastic. Even if we know they're going for their mute buttons, even if we know there's a mechanical reason for that slight delay, nonetheless, we can't help ourselves. That's our negativity bias. When there's a pause in people's responses, we assume that means a lack of eagerness, a lack of enthusiasm, a lack of positive response. So that's what happens over and over again in the virtual world and it gradually builds up over time. That's just one simple example, one obvious example. There are many other little moments like that where we get this negative reaction or we assume a negative reaction faster than we can consciously combat it. Our unconscious minds evaluate the pause or the tone, what we think is the tone. We assume a negative response. And so over time, it builds up like scale for you plumbers clogging pipes. Uh, Over time, it gets harder and harder to get the information through. Uh, And so all virtual relationships degrade over time.
0: Right. And let's mention that book again that you published in um, 2018. It's Can You Hear Me Now? Is that correct? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Okay, excuse me. And for the listeners, I will have a link to that um, book in the show notes, so keep that in mind. And of course, we can't do a whole book on a podcast, but um, some of the things that Nick is referring to now are covered in the book, but we're still going to get some help out of this podcast. What are some of the traps and pitfalls that you identified in virtual communications? And I'm thinking more in the area of video communications with services like Zoom Google Hangouts, Skype, Go to Meeting, etc.
1: Yeah, video c- communication is very interesting because the assumption is that it's almost like being there, so it's almost as good. And we should therefore be comfortable with it. We should be happy communicating with video conferencing. And yet universally people report Zoom fatigue. It's become a phrase. Mm-hmm. So the question is why is that the case? Part of my research was delving into the, what are the issues with uh, video communication, the first thing that we find is that, very simply, last time I checked, everybody's face occupied three dimensions. You and I are three-dimensional beings. And all your listeners, I think we can safely assume, are three-dimensional beings. Sure. <laughs> but on, on Zoom conferences, on video conferences, they show up in two dimensions. Now that has the effect of flattening out your face. So your face, which is normally three dimensions, loses a little bit of its resolution, shows up a little flatter. And as a result, it's slightly harder to read your facial expressions. Now, you're not aware of that consciously when you're looking at the Zoom because you've got too many other things to think about. But what's going on there is you're looking at somebody's face and you're not really seeing that face in the way you would if you were if you were there present in person. So that's the first thing It's just a little harder to read those uh, those social cues that you're that you think you're getting on the video conference. The second thing that happens is a relic from audio conferencing and in fact telephones which is the sound that you hear is compressed because there was never a time when we had all the bandwidth that we needed. For those of you uh, who are old enough to remember dial-up, you remember that bandwidth has always been an issue. And when we added a lot of video, suddenly bandwidth was an issue again. So we've never had a point when we've had so much bandwidth that we could afford not to compress the audio part of the broadcast. Why is that an issue? Because the human voice is contained within a level of pitch that goes from about 50 hertz to about 350 hertz. For those of you who are engineers, you know what that means. If you don't, don't worry about it. Just understand that male voices are a little lower, female voices are a little higher, but we all are within this basic range of human voice. If that's all it it was, it wouldn't be a problem because the engineers compressed it to picking up that amount of of, uh, vocal range. But what we our human voices also do is that they put out overtones and undertones below and above that pitch. Those overtones and undertones go up to make the unique oral fingerprint, if you will, that is the sound of our voice. That's why we can identify voices so easily. For anybody that you know, you don't have to think about it for a couple of minutes and say to yourself, whose voice is that? You just know that's your mother's voice, that's a friend's voice, that's uh, the president's voice, that's a senator's voice that you've heard, actors, uh, famous people, and a whole circle of friends and and neighbors and family and so on. So we can do that without even thinking about it. That's because our unconscious minds immediately analyze those overtones and undertones and say, ha, that's Ted's voice. Now, when you compress that, you compress out those overtones and undertones, and therefore the voice is flattened. It gets a little harder to understand the voice, a little harder to determine whose voice it is. But most importantly, what happens is the emotions are conveyed in the undertones primarily and partly also in the overtones. But when you compress the voice signal, therefore you compress out some of the emotions. So once again, we're getting less emotion than we would if we were face to face. This is subtle. And we're not consciously aware of it. But what happens is people's voices on video conferences, just like they are in audio conferences, are more boring. They're less engaging because there's less emotion in them. And then the final piece that's particularly difficult for people to handle has to do with a sixth sense that we're not consciously aware of. And that's called proprioception. Now, proprioception is the unconscious sense that we use to keep track of where we are in space. Proprioception is how you don't bump into walls when you walk around. You don't have to consciously think about it. You just avoid objects. Right. But you also keep track of where the other people around you are in space. So that's why we find cocktail parties so stressful because you're surrounded by maybe 30 or 40 people. They're all milling around. They're moving all the time. Your poor, overtaxed, unconscious mind is trying to keep track of where all those people are. And it's important to understand proprioception is not just a visual sense. It also combines elements of hearing, uh, changes in air pressure. So that sense that you've had, perhaps, when you're walking down the street and you think somebody's looking at me and you turn around and, and sometimes there's somebody there, sometimes there there isn't. That's your proprioception sense, picking up on some subtle a physical cue, perhaps a little wind on the back of your neck or something like that, that suggests, ooh, I've got this feeling there's somebody behind me. That's proprioception. Now, why is that important? Because proprioception keeps track of where you are in space and the people around you are in space. On a video conference, you can't see clearly those people because... They look to your proprioception sense as if they're about three feet away. That's how far away the computer screen is. But the size is wrong for somebody who's two or three feet away from you. So your proprioception sense, in effect, goes into tilt, trying to figure out where those people actually are. It can't figure it out. As a result, it sends out a stress warning. It, it, It starts a fight or flight or freeze response in you. And so we find video conferencing stressful because our unconscious minds can't figure out where everybody is in space.
0: That's really, really interesting. Is this somewhat reflected in the way that people also position themselves in the video? For example, when I have video meetings with people, sometimes their head takes up the, the almost the entire screen of the video. It almost feels like they're in my face versus I noticed when you and I were talking the other day via Zoom. You were standing, and so it felt like you were standing a little bit back and not so close, but you were very clear, and it was very easy to communicate with you. Is there something relative to this positioning, too?
1: Yes, I do that deliberately because of this proprioception issue. It's good to give people the sense that you are uh, sort of head and shoulders uh, away from the other person. It's precisely your point. When people sit down in front of a laptop and their, whole, and their head fills up essentially the whole laptop screen because of the way the, the cameras angle, then it makes it look like the person is too close to you. And we react negatively when people get into our personal or intimate space who aren't intimates of us. So work colleagues are not our intimates. You know, we're fine letting children and our spouse, perhaps significant others into intimate space, into very close personal space. Uh, But we're not comfortable doing that with uh, work colleagues or strangers on a video conference. And so it feels very odd. It feels too close. And so what I do is deliberately stand back to give uh, the viewer a little space. And I put uh, pictures on the wall behind me to give them a further clue as to where I am in space. And so uh, what I'm doing there is what directors and movie directors and set directors in theater have known for 100 years that you have to give people clues as to how big things are on that set or on that movie screen and if you do then they relax and they and they think they understand it movie directors of course also play with that they sometimes make a monster look bigger than the monster actually is in order to scare you <laughs> deliberately. Uh, but our job is to, is to not terrify our viewers, the people we're communicating with in video conference, but rather to make them feel comfortable. And so to do that, we should dress our sets with three-dimensional cues, with depth perception cues, uh, so that we can uh, say to the other people, I'm standing a few feet away from you, close enough to have a good conversation, but not so close that I'm crowding your personal space causing a stress reaction.
0: Sure. That makes a lot of sense. And have you heard of this issue that recently came up in a conversation, actually with my wife who was talking about Zoom, um, the Zoom stare? <laughs> the, yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about?
1: Yeah. It's, it, that's a genuine issue. And it's one actually that also comes up on audio conferences, odd as that sounds. And, and the reason for it is this. It takes humans about eight years to learn how to talk to each other. <laughs> and that sounds like a funny statement. But if you think about it, we start learning about age one, to between age one and two. And depending on how precocious you are. And we learn we're pretty good conversers by about age eight or nine. So it takes about eight years. And during that time, what we're learning is how to do this human dance of making eye contact, looking away, leaning in, nodding and smiling. And take a moment, if you're curious as to what I mean precisely, is when you have a conversation this afternoon, let's say, with with a loved one, watch how you move your head and look at them. You make eye contact when you want to initially get their attention. Then when you start talking, you typically look away as you talk and then you look back toward them when you want to stress a point or when you're getting ready to signal that you're almost done with your part of the conversation and you're ready to hand the conversational ball back over to the other person. So there's this whole dance, as I say, of signals, eye contact, body language, head nods, leaning in, leaning back, all this sort of thing. It's there are many, many subtle little signals that we learn. And what happens uh, on an audio conference is we can't see any of that. So we interrupt each other all the time. On a video conference, we can see each other. But uh, because it looks like you're doing something else when you look away from the camera, it looks like you're leaving the meeting. Then we all feel that we have to stare at the camera the whole time. And as a result, instead of feeling like a natural conversation, that thing we learned how to do over eight years as a child, it feels like a weird fixed stare as if somebody were punishing us or or observing us too closely. So we begin to feel like fish in a bowl, and it's a very uncomfortable feeling. <laughs> yeah,
0: you know, I can think, you know, I think about some of these meetings that I've had online, and um, I completely understand where this is coming from. So... What can listeners do to avoid, let's say, two or three of the key traps that you'd be concerned about or the key issues in terms of virtual video uh, conversations?
1: As I suggested, the first thing to do is to set up your, your video conferencing space so that it provides clues to the other people as to where you are in space. Don't use one of those virtual screens, as tempting as it is, to put the Taj Mahal or Chartres Cathedral or, right. or uh, New York City behind you, please don't do that because that makes you look like Godzilla in the movie. <laughs> uh, you're way too big in relation typically to the buildings behind you. So it makes you into some sort of monster. So don't do that. It, it just doesn't give the right clues to people. Uh, do try to set up A set which gives you a a couple of clear clues as to depth perception so the other person can feel like they know where you are relax a bit and and they'll pay better attention they won't get as tired they'll be able to focus more so that's that's the first thing the second thing is do make it like a conversation in other words um, turn off your the screen that has a a little picture of you because that'll make you more self-conscious And look at the camera as if you were looking at somebody else. Pretend that's another person that you're talking to. And allow your eyes to drift away when you're in the middle, say, of a sentence, and then come back when you're getting ready to... To finish your thought and hand the conversation over to somebody else, because that will feel more like a conversation. That takes a little practice. It isn't a normal thing to stare at a camera and pretend it's a human being, but it's what all uh, TV personalities learn how to do, and all movie actors. They learn how to make love to the, to that screen. They learn how to argue to that uh, with that camera. They learn how to fight furiously. Whether they learn how to emote in all kinds of ways, and just specifically to that. Red dot, or that uh, in the case of a computer, it's usually a green dot showing that the, the camera is on. So, you have to t- talk to that camera as if it were another human being. Those things aside, then uh, what you want to do is allow yourself to be conversational, allow yourself to uh, try to be your yourself, to be natural, to be normal. But, and here's the thing crank up the emotions just a little bit. So be a little more enthusiastic if you're feeling enthusiastic. If you're angry, be a little angrier. What happens is video conferencing flattens out all that affect, the emotions. And so you need to put a little bit more of yourself back into it. If you've got some energy, come on like you've had 12 cups of coffee. Just a little heightened enthusiasm. As I say, make the appropriate uh, emotion according to the moment that you're in but crank it up just a little bit. If you start doing those things, that will help make your participation at a video conference feel a little bit better.
0: And so that last would require, I mean, a little bit of practice, I guess. Maybe the thing to do is to practice with people that you know, maybe a friend or a work colleague, and the two of you can practice this you know, virtually before you get in front of a customer or somebody that uh, some other stakeholder where it really makes a difference what you're saying.
1: That's a great idea. And I would say a very important one for people, especially who are in sales or trying to connect with customers in this virtual space during the pandemic where they've been able to have face-to-face meetings before because you think you're communicating in the same way. This is just you being the same as you are in face to face. But you're not coming through at the same level of conviction, of passion, of enthusiasm that you are when you come across uh, in person, face to face. And so it's a great idea to just rehearse that a little bit with a, a trusted colleague, somebody who'll tell it to you straight. and then return the favor and do it for him or her and say, let's run through this script. Let's talk about how, pretend I'm a potential client or a customer. Let's let's have that conversation, see how it goes, and then give, us, give each other honest feedback because you'll be surprised. The other person will tell you that you're coming across less excited or less energetic than you normally are.
0: Well, this is really terrific. This is great advice. And the way you word it. I mean, I can just visually pick this up, especially the whole concept of the dance that we have when we're having a conversation, the whole concept of intent and how you communicate intent and how the virtual gets in the middle of that. This is really terrific advice, and I appreciate you sharing it with us today.
1: It's my great pleasure. There there are lots more suggestions in the book than we've been able to cover here. I wish I could say there was one thing that you could do that would make it all better. (laughs) Unfortunately, there isn't. It's a lot of little things. Some of the things we've discussed, and then as I say, there there are more in the book. But if there's one thing that could guide you, it's to realize that, hey, my intent is not coming through as clearly and effortlessly as I think it is, as it does when I'm face-to-face and having a conversation with a friend or even with a potential customer. So I need to be, clearer about my intent in the virtual world and there's a further follow up to that especially when you're communicating via text but also over video and audio you need to be consistent we humans for some reason which we could get into if we had time um, are much harsher judges of each other in the virtual world in the in the face to face world if you slip up or make a mistake or make a joke which isn't funny I'll forgive you because the humans are like that, especially if I know you well. And I say, well, Ted was just having a bad day that day. So it's OK. He's still Ted. I, st- I still have the relationship. In the virtual world, we tend to judge people by consistency instead of trust. We substitute consistency for trust. And the result is we're much harsher on each other. And so it's very important to be consistent in the in the virtual world to other people. Otherwise, they'll cut us loose. They won't continue to trust us.
0: Another great piece of advice. Well, thank you very much, Nick. This has been terrific. And like I said earlier, I do want to come back and have a podcast on the whole concept of storytelling, you know, people telling stories, they're co- a company having a story. But today, this is really valuable to help people with the challenges in front of them right now, which is communicating effectively in a virtual world.
1: Wonderful. It's been a great pleasure chatting with you and, and good luck to everybody out there in cyberspace. I hope uh, I hope you're able to make the the transition successfully, these are very difficult times for all of us. And we all hope to an early end of the pandemic.
0: You bet. And with your help, I'm. in fact, I'm going to have to get that book and read it myself since a lot of my work of course is done virtually, but um, hopefully we'll make progress in that regard. Well, that was very interesting. I hope you found it as interesting as I did. And it means that I have work to do. And I could even tell that when I was editing the interview, that my interaction was somewhat muted and I really need to amp up the way that I speak into the microphone and it probably means I need to do some work on my virtual communication as well. So you can imagine what the immediate impact idea for today is and that is for you to do a virtual recording um, on your computer or do a virtual conversation with a friend of yours and really... Add some emotion to what you're doing. Like he said, learn how to dance with that camera. Stare right into it. Add some emotion to what you're doing. Even exaggerate just to see how it comes out. And make sure you record it if it is a Zoom conversation with a colleague so you can play it back to yourself. I think you'll learn something about how you look and what your affect is when you are in a virtual situation. That's it for today. Thank you so much for spending time with me. If you like the podcast, please rate it, suggest it to a friend, and even consider subscribing to it. Well, now I think it's time for you to go win your week.